The Old Testament reading is Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6. And this is the infallible and inerrant word of God. Let's hear God's word. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Uh, This is a wonderful promise that the Lord made to his people Israel. Uh, Specifically in this passage, the Lord is speaking to the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, and promising that the salvation that he will bring when he comes into the world will not only be for his people Israel, but that salvation will also extend uh, to the ends of the earth and the Gentiles will be brought into God's kingdom. And in our passage uh, this morning from Luke chapter seven, even during the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus, uh, here is an example in which the grace that he came to bring uh, his people uh, is extended uh, to a Gentile. Uh, who represents that great incoming of the nations that one day uh, and is now taking place as God brings uh, the peoples of the world into his kingdom. So our New Testament reading is Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. And this is our sermon text as well. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. May the Lord bless his word to us this morning. Even though just a few weeks ago we began our study of Romans uh, for today and for the next couple of Sundays that I'll be here in the pulpit, we're going to take a detour and uh, look at uh, a few passages uh, from Luke's gospel. And then after that, we will be returning back to Romans. So I'm not uh, forgetting Romans, but uh, we'll be uh, returning there uh, in a few weeks. But in our passage this morning from uh, this uh, from Luke's gospel, uh, we read of Jesus uh, going into a town, the town of Capernaum, and there he heals the servant of a centurion. Uh, A centurion was a Roman officer uh, in the uh, Roman army. 
And the outstanding feature of this healing, what really makes it maybe not uh, unique, but uh, special, is that Jesus uh, did it from a distance. Uh, Jesus uh, merely willed that the servant be, he- be healed. Uh, he spoke a word, and without even being in his presence, uh, the servant was made well. But Luke uh, draws our attention not so much to the healing itself, as wonderful as that is, uh, nor to the centurion's servant who was healed, uh, but Luke's concern is with the servant's master, the centurion. Uh, this man is one of the more remarkable characters that we come across in the pages of the Gospels, and that is because of his remarkable faith. And uh, as we look at the centurion, particularly as we consider his faith, uh, we'll see that he has some lessons to teach us today. But before we take a deeper look at the faith of the centurion, uh, let's take a closer look at the man himself. Uh, A centurion was uh, something like an army captain. Uh, He was in charge of 100 men. That's where the name centurion comes from. There was 100 uh, soldiers under his authority. And there was much about this particular centurion that would have made him an unusual figure. Uh, He didn't fit the image that most people would have had in their minds of what a Roman officer uh, would be like. In fact, he probably doesn't fit the image that we have in our own minds of what we uh, would consider the kind of person, the kind of man who would be a Roman military officer. Uh, We might expect uh, a man in his position uh, to be a hard man, a man who ruled with a domineering spirit over his servants and his soldiers, a man who would not likely have a soft spot in his heart uh, for the people under his authority. Uh, But Luke shows us quite a different character uh, than that. This man is far from being unkind or hard or calloused. Uh, He says in verse 2, Luke tells us in verse 2, that the centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Now, when Luke says that the servant was highly valued by the centurion, that's not because the servant was such a good worker, though we can assume that he was, but he's not highly valued simply because of the effectiveness or the, or the, or the quality of his service, but rather he was highly valued in the eyes of the centurion because he was dear to him. He was esteemed by him. He valued him in a more personal way with affection. I believe the King James Version brings this out by saying that the servant was dear unto him. And so he had a genuine concern for the life, for the well-being of his servants. And for that reason, then, the centurion, he sends a a company of Jewish leaders, the elders of the Jews. He sends them to Jesus to ask Jesus uh, to come to his house uh, to heal his servant who is uh, at the point of death. And the fact that uh, this is also a remarkable thing, the fact that the centurion was able to send uh, leaders of the Jews to Jesus. Uh, We might expect that as a uh, officer in the army of the nation or the empire that is occupying uh, Palestine, the people of Israel, who's keeping them in subjection, we might expect that 
a Roman officer would have nothing but contempt for uh, the people of the Jews. We might expect that he would want nothing to do with the Jewish people. That was certainly the attitude that many Roman people had towards their Jewish subjects. But that was not the case with this man. The elders of the Jews testify to Jesus that he loves the Jewish nation. And that wouldn't be the case if this centurion also didn't have some respect for or even belief in the religion of the Jews, the God of the Jews. He may have been, and it appears that he was what was called a God-fearer. A God-fearer was a person who was a Gentile. He was not Jewish, but as a Gentile, he came to believe in the God of Israel, the God of the Scriptures. And yet he did not go so far as to be circumcised. And so probably the centurion was a God-fearer. He believed in the God of the Jews. And his regard for the Jewish people, his, um, his belief, we can presume, in the God of Israel uh, was so great that he even uh, built a synagogue for the Jewish people. And so he was not only a kind man, he was not only a pious man, but he was a very generous man as well. And if any Jewish person had met this Roman centurion and saw uh, the kind of character that he was, that he was humane, he was caring, that he was, mag- um, he was generous in spirit, uh, that he loved the Jews, that he was perhaps even a, a worshiper of Israel's God, uh, no doubt a Jewish person would marvel at such a man. Uh, they would have thought, here is an amazing thing. Uh, this officer in the army who is keeping us in subjection uh, he, is, uh, he is cut from a different cloth than most of the Roman officers and military people that we know. He is good. He is decent. He is even godly. And so he would be a cause of marveling. And Jesus does. Jesus marvels at the centurion. But he does not marvel at the character, the quality of the centurion. But what Jesus marvels at is his faith. His faith. After the centurion in this passage, after he sends a second set of messengers, this time his friends, uh, to uh, Jesus, as Jesus is on his way to his house, and he tells these messengers to tell Jesus not to trouble himself to come under his roof, but just to say the word and the servant will be healed. When Jesus hears this message, Luke tells us about Jesus' reaction. And this is what he says in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. I believe the English Standard Version that I'm reading from here doesn't uh, capture this uh, quite accurately. It's not just such faith, but what Jesus said was, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And so Jesus marveled at the greatness of the faith that the centurion demonstrated before him. He did not see this among his own people. People of Israel, uh, a lot of the people, they demanded signs. They wanted Jesus to perform miracles and do signs or else they would not believe in him. And even when he did those signs, they would not believe in him. The Pharisees demanded signs as well. But this Roman centurion believed in Jesus simply on the basis of what he heard about him, what he heard about him secondhand. 
And he believed that Jesus could heal his servant merely by speaking a word from a distance, that he did not even have to be present with the servant, but that he had such power, such authority, that he could merely say the word and his servant would be healed. And so Jesus, he marveled the faith of this Gentile who had such trust, confidence in his ability to heal. Now, one thing that we should marvel at as we consider this is the fact that Jesus would marvel at anything. Remember who Jesus is. This is the Son of God. This is the very God who existed from all eternity, who is infinite in power and authority, who is infinite in uh, truth and justice, and who is the ruler of all things. It is this very God who has come in the person of Jesus, in the flesh, into the world. This was the Son of God who was present at the very act of creation itself, the one through whom all things were made. And this is the one later who will say in Luke's gospel, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And it's hard to imagine that there could be anything that takes place on our little planet here that would amaze or marvel the Son of God, who was the one through whom all things were made, who witnessed creation, who ruled over all things, who saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What could be amazing to Jesus here on earth? But Luke tells us that Jesus is amazed. He's marveling. He's astonished. He just heard something that was stunning, that was jaw-dropping. And what in the world could cause amazement on the part of Christ? It was the fact that this Gentile, this Gentile had shown such faith in him. In all the Gospels, the only other time that we that we read of Jesus marveling or being amazed is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter six. And this is when Jesus is in Nazareth, the place where he grew up, his hometown, where everybody knew him. And he refused to do any miracles in Nazareth because of the unbelief on the part of his own townspeople. Uh, Mark says in chapter 6, verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Isn't it striking that the only two places that we read about in the Gospels where Jesus marvels at anything, both of them have to do either with the faith or with the unbelief of other people. And what was so surprising, what caused Jesus to marvel on these occasions was the fact that it was a Gentile who showed great faith and it was the Jews who showed so little faith. It should have been the exact opposite. It should have been the Gentiles who completely disbelieved in Jesus, who were completely unresponsive to him. And it should have been the Jewish people who received him with faith, who embraced him, who acknowledged him as the Savior, as the Messiah, the Christ. Because Jesus came into the world as the Savior of the people of Israel. He came in the first place to save the people of God, the people of Israel. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was their Christ. He was their Lord. He was the incarnation of the very God that they professed to know and worship. And yet... They did not meet him in faith. John tells us in John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. 
And now here we have someone to whom Jesus did not come, at least not in the first place. He did not come in the first place to save the Gentiles. And yet this person, this centurion, he does receive him. He receives him in faith. In Matthew's account of this same story, uh, Jesus says this. This is Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this centurion has found his way into the kingdom of heaven. Not because he was an Israelite, because he wasn't, but because of his faith, because he believed in Jesus. And that's a lesson that we can take from this. And that is what Jesus looks for in people is faith, trust, uh, responsiveness to the person of Christ, believing who he is and why he came into the world. Later in Luke, Jesus says this, when the Son of Man comes, that is, when the Son of Man comes again in glory, will he find faith on earth? That's what Jesus will be looking for. And so what Jesus looks for in people, what he looks for in you and me, is not that we belong to the right ethnicity, not that we are Jew, uh, uh, Jewish, or not that we are Gentile, not that we come from the right place or the right family. Jesus does not look Uh, He is not looking for uh, great accomplishments. He is not looking uh, for those who have great talents or resources or abilities. But what Jesus looks for in you and me is faith. It makes no difference whatsoever to Jesus where you come from, who you are, what your background is, even what you have done, as long as your trust and your faith is in him as the Son of God, as your Savior from sin and death. What Jesus looks for is a heart that believes in him, that trusts in him, that receives him as the Son of God who came into the world in order to die for our sins and whom God raised from the dead for our justification, our salvation. That is what Jesus looks for. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in, in his sermon on this passage, he, he discusses all of the outstanding qualities of the centurion. And then he says this. He says, the one thing that gives him a place in these sacred pages is this. He believed in the Messiah. And the same thing can be said about you and me. Whatever else may be said about you. Whatever else may be said about the life that you have lived, whether good or bad. The one thing and the only thing that will secure for you a place in heaven is this, that in this life, you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. You have entrusted yourself to him. By faith in him, you have turned from your sin and you have come to Jesus as your savior. That is the one thing that matters. Now let's take a closer look at the faith of the centurion and let's see what made it so worthy of condemnation, not condemnation, Commendation on the part of Jesus. First of all, his faith was, well, he was, his faith was praised for two reasons. First of all, his faith was marked by a profound humility. And secondly, his faith consisted of an absolute trust in the power, the authority of the word of Christ. So first of all, 
The centurion's faith was marked by a profound humility. When the elders of the Jews, those whom the centurion sent to Jesus, when they come to him, the first thing that they say to Jesus, or the first thing they, that they do, is they, they, they tell Jesus, they assure Jesus, that this, this man is worthy of your time and attention. And no doubt the elders of the Jews begin this entreaty by telling Jesus how worthy this man is, is because he was a Gentile. And as a Jew, they assume that Jesus would not be predisposed uh, to go to the house of a Gentile to visit him. And so they begin their plea in verse 4 by saying, he is worthy, he is worthy to have you do this for him. And they go on to say why the centurion is worthy for Jesus to minister to his servant because he, has, because he loves the Jewish people, because he has built them a synagogue. But then later, the second group of people that the centurion sends, the friends that he sends, they come to Jesus when he's on his way to the centurion's house to heal his servant, and they come with a different message to bring to Jesus. They tell Jesus that what the centurion says is this, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So first Jesus hears from the first group of people that this man is worthy to have you come to him, but then he hears from the centurion himself through the friends that he sends, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. The centurion saw something about himself that the elders of the Jews whom he sent failed to see. And that was that he really wasn't worthy to have Jesus come to his house as a guest. Now clearly something took place in the thinking of the centurion after he sent the first group of emissaries to Jesus to ask for his help and, and before he sent the second group uh, to tell Jesus, don't trouble yourself to come. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Luke doesn't explain for us exactly what went in, what was going on in the mind of the centurion, uh, what was happening. Uh, so we have to speculate a bit, but based on what Luke does tell us, I believe we can say this. This is what I believe that happened. I believe that once the centurion actually heard that Jesus was coming to his house, he began to have second thoughts. Have you ever wanted something so badly? You wanted to see something happen so, so much. But then when that thing started to come about, that thing starts to happen, you start to have second thoughts. Maybe, maybe I don't really want this after all. Uh, that's why we have the saying, be careful what you ask for, because you might get it. And I believe that it began to dawn on the centurion just who it was that he uh, pleaded to come to his house to heal his servant. He began to realize that this was Jesus. This was a man who... The centurion knew this was a man who taught with authority. He was wise in his teaching, unlike any other Jewish rabbi. Of course, he had heard this. We, we assume that he had not actually met him or heard him uh, firsthand. He knew that he was powerful in his works of healing. But above all else, what began to dawn on the centurion was this Jesus. Yes, he is a man of power. He is a man who is wise. But he is, above all else, he is righteous. He is holy. But there is something about this Jesus that reveals the holiness, the righteousness of God himself. 
And the more the centurion considered the holiness of Christ, the more he considered who Jesus was. And perhaps he was not able to articulate that Jesus is the Son of God, but he knew instinctively, he knew that this is a man from God, that this is a holy man, a righteous man. And the more that began to be impressed upon his heart, the more he began to sense his own unworthiness. That he is a man, though he has many fine qualities, who is at heart a sinful man, unworthy, unable to stand in the presence of this righteous and holy Jesus. In other words, the centurion began to feel just like Peter felt earlier in Luke. You remember when Peter's on the boat with Jesus and Jesus brings in this miraculous catch of all these fish? You know, what does Peter say? He doesn't rejoice in all the fish that Jesus caught, but he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And in the same way, I believe the centurion started to think He started to say to himself, I cannot have this Jesus come under my roof, for I too am a sinful man. And since he's so convicted of his own unworthiness, he he hurries his friends out the door before Jesus comes with the second message. And the second message is, please don't come to my home. Don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come. But just say the word, say the word and my servant will be healed. It's very instructive to compare the centurion and his attitude towards Jesus uh, with what we read later in Luke chapter seven, when Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee named Simon. Uh, Simon had no problems whatsoever of having Jesus come to his house, to be under his roof. In fact, this Pharisee, he shows a very presumptuous attitude towards Jesus in that he fails to show the common uh, signs or he fails to uh, show the common courtesy that was extended to guests. Uh, He gave him no water for his feet. He gave him no kiss. He did not anoint his head with oil. In fact, this Pharisee in his pride and presumption He acted like it should have been a great honor for Jesus to be uh, the guest of his in his house, the guest of a Pharisee. But in fact, it was the very opposite. It was an incredible honor that Jesus was showing the Pharisee that he should come to his house to be the guest of a sinner. But that was the problem. The Pharisee did not recognize that he was a sinner. He was spiritually blind to his own sin. How far that was from the attitude, the understanding of the centurion who saw his sin and knew that he was not worthy. And this is why Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion, part of why at least, because he understood something that so many people failed to understand. This Gentile understood what so many of the Jews failed to understand, and that was His sin made him utterly unworthy to come into the presence of the Son of God. And so the centurion received from God a wonderful gift of grace. This was God's grace to the centurion that enabled him to see his own heart, his own condition, that he was a sinner. And that is a rare thing in our world today. That is a very, very rare thing today 
that someone is able to see the true depth, the extent of their own sin. Now, many people, everybody, everybody will admit they make mistakes sometimes. And almost everybody will admit that they have sinned in one way or the other. And many people will even acknowledge and agree with the statement, I am a sinner. But how many people in the world today, how many people truly comprehend the nature, the true nature of their sin? We tend to think of our sin as the the sum total of all the things that I've done wrong. I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I shouldn't have said this, I shouldn't have thought that. So all of that together, this is my sin. But sin is something even more profound than that. It goes much deeper than that. It's something much more basic to our very constitution as fallen creatures than that. Sin affects every part of my being, my heart, my will, my affections, my desires, even my thinking has been corrupted and darkened by the presence of sin within me. In fact, there is nothing that I can do. Apart from the grace of God, there is nothing that can come from me, no matter how good it may look outwardly. There is nothing from me that I can bring to God that is truly pure and righteous and able to withstand his perfect judgment. Even the good that I do is tainted by my sin. And it's true for all of us that even before we were old enough to commit an actual sin, even at our birth, when we could not do either good or bad, even then, our very being is sinful. We are constituted as sinners because of our fall from grace that originally took place in our first father, Adam. And that's the depth of sin that we are rendered this way, and therefore we are unworthy, apart from grace, in ourselves, we are unworthy to be in the presence of God. And because people don't understand that, because not many people truly comprehend that, this is why the gospel does not penetrate into the hearts of so many people. Because if you do not believe that you are so corrupted by sin, that you need the Son of God to die for you in order to cleanse and to purify you from sin, in order that you may be forgiven of your sin. If you do not believe that about yourself, then the gospel is not good news. And so my question to you is this. Has God given you the grace to see the truth about who you are morally and spiritually apart from the grace of God? Has God given you the grace to see that By nature, you are a sinner. That if you were to come into the presence of God in your sin, apart from Christ, apart from grace, that you would be undone. Has God enabled you to see that about yourself? Would you feel that same sense of unworthiness that the centurion felt knowing that Jesus, the Son of God, was coming to your house? Would you feel that same deep sense of conviction of sin like Peter did? When Jesus made that miraculous catch of fish and Peter said, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Part of what makes the centurion's faith so wonderful, part of why Jesus marveled at it, 
was his profound humility before the Lord Jesus. He recognized he was unworthy for Jesus to come into his presence. But the other feature of the centurion's faith that caused Jesus to marvel was his absolute confidence in the authority and power of the word of Christ. The centurion trusted in the word of Christ. Uh, He says to uh, Jesus through his friends in verse 7, he says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And then he says in verse 8, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now I imagine some of you will resonate with the words of the centurion because some of you have served in the military and you know just how important it is in that world that authority is respected, that orders are uh, to be obeyed, and that when you give an order to those who are under you, you expect it to be carried out. My dad served in the National Guard and when I was growing up, uh, he would tell me something that he learned in his time uh, in the military and that is, when I began to grumble or question something that my dad told me to do, he would say, son, if I tell you to jump, you say, how high? So he taught me that the word of the authority is to be obeyed. When Harry Truman was president of the United States, as he was reflecting on the possibility of General Eisenhower, who of course was the leader of the, uh, of the army, when he was reflecting on the possibility that he would become president one day, uh, Truman said this, he said, he'll sit here and he'll say, do this, do that, and nothing will happen. Poor Ike, it won't be like the army, he'll find it very frustrating. And this centurion knew what it was like for orders to be obeyed. When he said, do this, when he said, do that, the people under him did it. And when his Superiors, those over him, when they told him, you do this or you do that, he did it. He carried out his orders. So he knew all about authority. And what he saw in Jesus was a man who had authority. Here was a man who had greater authority than his supervisors. Here is a man who had greater authority than even Caesar himself. Here is a man who had the authority of God himself. That by his word, he could heal Here was a man who had authority not just over an empire, but over creation. That Jesus could speak his word and that word would go with his power and his authority and it would accomplish his will, even healing a servant who was on the point of death. And for that reason, he had complete confidence in the ability to heal his servant simply by speaking a word. That was enough for him to believe. He didn't need to see Jesus. He didn't need to have Jesus come into the presence of the servant. But he believed that Jesus could heal simply because of who he was. Uh, The words that Jesus spoke in the Gospel of John applies to the centurion. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And the centurion was blessed that day because he believed in the word of Christ. He believed that Jesus was able to heal his servant. And he was blessed because Jesus did heal his this servant who was dear to him. And we can also say that the centurion was blessed because he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And not only was his servant healed of his disease, but the centurion came to the Savior that he might be healed of his sin and guilt that he might receive eternal life 
He came to faith in Christ. And you too are blessed if you have believed in Christ, although you have not seen him with your eyes. None of us have seen Jesus with our eyes, and yet we are blessed if we believe in him. And you are blessed for the same reason that the centurion was blessed, because of the powerful word of Christ. Just as the word of Jesus was powerful to heal the centurion's servants, so the word of Jesus is powerful to forgive all your sins. It is powerful to fill you with the Holy Spirit, to give you his everlasting life, to meet all your needs, to fulfill all his promises to you. The word of Jesus is powerful. And there is no more of Jesus that you need than he has not already given to you in his word and by his spirit. All you need to believe is that his word is absolutely sufficient for all you need in this life and in the life to come. Now there is a day coming when we will be in the presence of Jesus. We'll be there with the centurion in the presence of the Son of God and we'll see him with our eyes. But until then, you have his word. You have his spirit, you have his promises. And that is all you need for salvation, for life, for hope, for peace. Let's pray.